Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome back to The Kicker, the Columbia Journalism Review's weekly podcast. I'm your host, David Uberti, and I will be your guide as we enter a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man, the week in media. This week, we'll start with our typical rundown of some of the news industry's top stories, from quarterly earnings reports to layoffs at ESPN to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Then we'll turn to the hurricane of criticism, see what I did there, around Brett Stevens, the new conservative on the New York Times' op-ed page, who poked a finger in the eye of climate science with his first column last weekend. Did he raise a legitimate viewpoint to challenge the Times' cosmopolitan readership, or was he outside the reasonable boundaries of public debate? Finally, I'll interview Ashley Codiani, director of social publishing at CNN. We'll discuss how news organizations increasingly put their content directly onto third-party platforms, like Facebook or Snapchat, and how a company known primarily for its television station is trying to dominate all of them. But before we begin, I'd just like to add, in proper dad joke form, thank you, as always, for kicking it with us. Joining me for our first two segments this week are CGR senior editor Christy Chisholm, who finally came up for air after producing our forthcoming print edition about local news, which will be out in the coming weeks. Christy, welcome back to the hallowed ground of this podcast studio. Thank you. I'm starting to catch my breath again. And also CGR's man on the street, Pete Vernon, who, in addition to providing an endless supply of obscure cultural references, writes CJR's morning newsletter, The Media Today. Pete, what's up? Good to be back again. So I heard there was some sort of gathering over the weekend, maybe some sort of celebratory dinner of sorts within the <laughs> Beltway. There were, uh, there were a few gatherings over the weekend. The one I think you're referencing is the annual get-together of schlubby journalists with A-list celebrities there to toast and roast the president of the United States. It was a little bit different this year. Uh, this past Saturday, those journalists got together with some non-A-list celebrities and no president to speak of. So the White House Correspondents' Dinner went on, as the Correspondents' Association promised it would. There was plenty of poking fun of the president by the comedian Hassan Minaj, who actually I thought did a, a really great job. But the major theme of the night was defending the First Amendment, which was uh, obviously something that was talked about by Jeff Mason, the Correspondents Association president, as well as Woodward and Bernstein, who were there to give their take. Right. So during this defense of the First Amendment with this toned down party, at the same time, the president was offering up his own sort of counterprogramming, if you will. Right. He was out uh, 100 miles away in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at a rally where he played all the hits, attacked the media. He said at one point, I could not possibly be more thrilled to be more than 100 miles away from Washington Swamp, spending my evening with all of you, a much, much larger crowd and much, much better people. Then he added that the media deserves a very big, fat, failing grade. And this is kind of, you know, par for the course at Trump events. One of the things I think is interesting in this whole discussion is that Trump actually hasn't done anything to restrict media access in his first 100 days. He loves us. Yeah, he's way more open to reporters. If you talk to Washington reporters, they'll say, yeah, he'll get on the phone. He'll he'll invite us into the office. Right. And I, I, from my perspective, it just seems like there's literally nothing new or interesting about any of his sort of so-called media attacks at this point. They ring as completely disingenuous to me. And I, I just wonder whether we should still give them much attention. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they're having you know, th obviously they're not having the same impact that they used to and people are kind of normalized. They, they've become used to them. The one issue I do think is that his threats to open up libel laws, that's not going to happen. Like it's not, nothing would get through Congress that would do that. 
But it does allow supporters, general public, to attack and question the media. Um, it kind of makes that part of the refrain from his supporters. So I do worry about what the long-term impact of that is, having the president right. attacking the media. Right. Definitely part of our political culture nowadays. Moving on to another topic of conversation with regard to political culture, or at least in, among some segments of the commentariat, ESPN. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a bad week last week for ESPN and more specifically for about 100 reporters there who were laid off in a what was really a, a business move. ESPN has dominated cable airwaves for years. It had over 100 million subscribers not that long ago, but it now only has about 90 million subscribers. And that's due to a variety of reasons from cord cutting or or cord nevers as the young people who have never had cable are called, uh, to the reality that ESPN is expensive. It eats up more than $7 of a cable bill. That's its carriage fees. So some people are opting for these bundles that don't include sports packages, which are really expensive. Um, right. As you mentioned, though, it's become something even more of a media story because some right-wing publications, not, not right-wing, some conservative publications have taken issue with the tone of the political conversation on ESPN. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's a fair characterization, that ESPN has become politicized? I, I understand that's sort of a meme on Twitter that reporters should, quote-unquote, stick to sports and what have you. Do you think it's a, a fair criticism to say that ESPN has integrated more political discussion within its sports coverage? I think it's fair to say that everything is more politicized right now, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's sports, um, anything that's kind of in the public sphere has become more politicized. And with ESPN, a lot of people point to when Michael Sam was drafted into the NFL in 2014, ESPN showed a cutaway of him receiving the call and he had come out as gay prior to the draft and he turned and kissed his boyfriend. Um, then ESPN presented the Arthur Ashe Courage Award to Caitlyn Jenner. There was a lot of discussion at ESPN about Colin Kaepernick and his decision to take a knee during the national anthem. And their public editor, Jim Brady, has said he thinks that, yes, there is more politics on the network. Um, he thinks that a lot of the most outspoken voices are more liberal. So, yeah, that part is fair to argue that that's the cause of ESPN's economic problems. That's just not. There's no evidence to support that. Right. I just don't know why I would be watching Sports Center when I could just flip open to Bleacher Report's Instagram at this point. Right. And that's the issue: is that it's not that something in their political stances has turned people off. It's that the media system has changed, and you don't need Sports Center anymore. Right. Uh, finally, what are you looking at this week? There's some good news from the New York Times, I hear. Yeah, the New York Times uh, released its first quarter earnings. And what they had seen was a subscriber increase of over 300,000 new subscribers. Digital subscribers. Right. Uh, and so now they're at 2.2 million digital subscribers, which is incredible when you consider that 18 months ago, they were at a million. And six years ago, they had none. There was no digital subscription package. So this is a continuation of a trend that we saw in the last two quarters of 2016 as Trump news, or at that point, campaign news, was drawing more and more people to the website, and more and more of those people were subscribing at the website. There were a couple interesting things coming out of their earnings call this morning that I was listening in on. Print advertising is still in trouble. It's down, was down 18% in the quarter, but that was offset by these new subscription revenues. And also, 
buy some of their affiliate links business, which is a new thing. Right. They, they acquired Wirecutter last year, which is sort of in the e-commerce space, which you, you see with some more digitally native publications such as Gawker and now Fusion. Uh, Chrissy, I'm just curious before we wrap up this segment here. It seems that a lot of this subscriber surge has come in response to the election, as Pete said. Do you think that the outrage can be sustained over the long haul to you know try to catapult this into a more sustainable business? Oh, I don't know if I have the answer to that. I guess I guess the answer is that I, I hope so. Even if it's not outrage, I hope interest, right? I hope the lasting impact of the election on news readers as a whole, like the citizenry as a whole, um, even if it's not outrage, is just is just being interested in what's happening Engagement. in the world. Engagement, exactly. I think that too many people stood by, didn't get the results that they wanted in this election one way or another, right? And I think that people are now wanting to find out what's happening in other parts of the country. They want to hear what other people are thinking. They want to, like, have a voice in the discussion, too, themselves. And I think that part of that is just being engaged and reading what's happening on a daily basis. So I I hope that that's the reason that people are reading all sorts of news organizations work, you know, more often and subscribing to newspapers and magazines and you know, things that they want to support. I hope that it doesn't have that much to do with outrage and it has more to do with participation. Mm-hmm. And just for those of the, you who are interested, you can become a member of CGR at CGR.org. You'll get some print magazines and a weekly column by yours tru- truly. So check it out. And the print magazines are beautiful. I just have to say, as somebody who just spent so many weeks of my life just helping to put this one out onto into the ether, onto stands, hopefully into your hands. Um, they're really, they're really actually, they're, they're, they're quite nice. We, we have uh, redesigned them over the past couple of years, and it's a really lovely thing to be putting out. Anyway, so CJR, little push for the magazine. In between your fingertips. <laughs> That's right. Last month, the New York Times hired Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist and eloquent never-Trumper Brett Stevens away from the Wall Street Journal. There was pretty immediate criticism from liberals who protested Stevens' skepticism toward climate science, particularly the predictive aspects of climate science. And as any good provocative columnist would, Stevens wrote his first column, published last weekend, on this very topic. Pete, what exactly did Mr. Stevens say and why exactly are people angry about it? So, as you noted, he had been criticized for this coming into the job before he'd written a column, and he decided, well, I'm going to take that face on, and I'm going to provocatively open it up. He must be an opinion writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, he's, there's a reason he's a very highly paid man. Right. But he basically opened with an anecdote about the Hillary Clinton election loss and how all the pollsters said she was going to win, and she didn't. So, somehow, that is connected to climate science. Uh, in his column, which is something we can come back to later. But the the gist of it is, he says, it's definite that the planet is warming. It is definite that humans are contributing to it. But projections about what's going to happen next are not definite. And we need to avoid being so certain. And more specifically, we should think about how much money we spend. Here's the kind of nut graph that comes late in the column. He writes, Claiming total certainty about the science traduces the spirit of science and creates openings for doubt whenever a climate claim proves wrong. Demanding abrupt and expensive changes in public policy raises fair questions about ideological intentions. Censoriously asserting one's moral superiority and treating skeptics as imbeciles and deplorables wins few converts. So, 
readers had responses to that. A lot of responses. So the crux of his argument is basically that there is a gap between what is agreed upon science with regard to the climate and then also a lot of what activists on the left push with regard to the climate. Christy, I'm, I'm curious, from your standpoint, do you think that that sort of middle ground shooting that gap is worthwhile for media organizations? And secondly, do you think that was sort of the argument that Brett was actually making? Do you think he was fairly making that point? I don't know if he made a fair point, but he pointed to (laughs) a very real issue, which is that journalists do not always talk about science in the right way. And we don't always report on findings in a completely accurate way. Right. The irony being that Stevens himself didn't necessarily talk about science in a correct way either. I mean, he did not. (laughs) I think the funny thing about this and where he really lost me, I mean, I thought it was, you know, in one sense, his argument was reasonable, as you say. In the other sense, he is only accounting for sort of a miss in probabilities in one direction, right? He's He basically equated it to the election where there's two possible outcomes, either Hillary Clinton could have won or Donald Trump could have won. Whereas with the climate, I mean, we know the earth is warming. We know sea levels are rising. A trillion different things could happen because of that. It could be okay, and then it could be varying degrees of bad. It could be cataclysmic. Uh, so I think it's, it's in that sense, it's extremely difficult to do. And I, I think that's that's why so many people were pissed off about this column in particular. And you saw some people even go so far as to cancel their subscriptions from the New York Times. I think it's a pretty small number, and I think that's been accentuated on social media in some ways. But it is interesting that, that people have gone that far. The public editor of the New York Times, Liz Spade, former boss at CJR, she weighed in on this and basically said that it is necessary for the newspaper to have a diverse array of opinions on its op-ed page, that including Brett Stevens. So I'm curious, Pete, what's your take on that general argument? Is this representing a diversity of opinions or is this going so far outside the realm of acceptable public discourse with sort of laziness with the facts? Yeah, I think this is actually the thing that interests me most about Stevens' column. I'm not a scientist. I will gladly listen to the many scientists who have written in refutation of his column. But whether or not the Times should be embracing a climate skeptic, uh, whatever label you want to put on him. Again, he did say climate change is real, but is certainly taking a conservative view on it. That's a good question. And I would say yes, as long as the writers there are being intellectually honest. Um, And some people have accused Stevens of not being completely honest and probably a more fair argument to support his point would have been it could be not as bad as people are saying. It also could be worse as the general consensus is, Um, whatever. But the point is that a good editorial board should challenge readers from whatever ideological spectrum they approach the paper. I think a valid criticism of the Times editorial board as it exists is they said we need more diversity. And they went out and found a pretty middle-of-the-road, never-Trump conservative white guy. Um, <laughs> it'd be nice if... Of which they already have two. Right. It'd be not, Yeah, David Brooks and Ross Douthat are already there. Um, it'd be nice if they found a Trump supporter or a Bernie supporter or, like, maybe they got really crazy and hired a woman of color. Uh, you know, this is an editorial uh, or a set of columnists. It's not the editorial board, but the set of columnists. It has two women, one person of color, and a bunch of white dudes. Uh, and the the ideological spectrum runs from like Marco Rubio conservatives to Hillary Clinton liberals. Like there is not a leftist on the board. There's right. not a Trumpist on the board on the columnist row. So I think ideological diversity is good. I think gender, racial, 
diversity is good. Uh, geographic diversity would probably be nice. So those things are all good. And I think as long as those people are intellectually honest, then fine, we should have more of them. Right. Chrissy, do you think that matters? I think that what Pete presented was sort of a classical view of an editorial board having a diverse array of opinions that can challenge readers. Do you think that matters nowadays? Yeah, I think that matters. I think it matters maybe for different reasons. Not entirely. I think there are some new reasons that that matters. And one of those reasons is that rather than just, it's not just about challenging readers anymore. It's also about challenging the news organizations, I think, a little bit too. Something that we were talking about a lot right after the election that we're still talking about, although maybe not with the same ferocity as we at first were, was, you know, like just the, the fact that we all realized how little the American public trusts the media in general. And we were talking about how to regain that trust. We were talking about how to bridge the divide between kind of like one side of the country and the other ideologically. We were talking about like how to see what's happening in other parts of the country that aren't on the coast and, and, and like report in those areas and like really know what people are thinking and feeling about. Again, like not endorsing Stephen's column at all and not endorsing him as a choice, like whatever, like as a separate issue from that. My point is that I think that that kind of diversity, you know, of opinions on the editorial board is absolutely as important as, as it was before. I guess I disagree. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I read a really compelling column by a guy named Will Bunch in the Philadelphia Daily News who's basically... Hmm arguing that we've sort of passed this inflection point, that there's so much choice in the marketplace that if readers really wanted sort of a neoconservative viewpoint on climate change, they could just go somewhere else besides the New York Times. So why, you know, it would behoove the Times from a sort of organizational business standpoint to just say, hey, all of our readers are generally formally educated cosmopolitan urban liberals, mm -hmm. give or take. Uh, so we should cater to that audience. Hmm. We should we should try to seek out that audience globally and try to, you know, give them columnists that reflect their viewpoints and their worldviews, which I thought was pretty provocative. And I, it's difficult for me to sort of come to terms with what that shift will mean on a more society-wide basis and, and if that actually matters anymore, just given the reach of the New York Times within a huge ecosystem. Um, but I, I guess I'm I'm unconvinced that there needs to be a diversity of, a, of opinion on their editorial board. I mean, they have a prerogative mm. to have their own political p viewpoint, and I think they should they should do what they please. But so, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, that that goes to a larger question about like what the Times as an institution is trying to be and who it's trying to cater to. Like, if they make that kind of choice in their editorial pages, you know, in their op-ed pages, then that then extends to the rest of the paper, and then they kind of fall victim to what everyone's accusing them of being, which is just like a liberal like echo chamber. Yeah, so, I also, I don't think that's a good business decision necessarily. If you look at the U.S. where the Times is geographically underrepresented in subscribers, it's in the middle of the country. Like they're doing fine in the Northeast and the Pacific Coast. Um, they're doing very well internationally. So I don't know, like catering to a centrist liberal readership I don't think that's where the opportunity lies for them is convincing more liberals to su to subscribe. But in in terms of a market scale, I mean, I mean they will have a much easier time expanding their digital subscriber base to sort of center left progressive people globally speaking than people in the middle of the country. This no? also comes down to whether this is like a like what kind of decision is it? Like is this based on like business and like trying to get more members and or subscribers or is this about you know, ideologically, what kind of paper they want to be and what, like, do they think, like, are, what are what are they trying to progress? 
they trying to progress money? Right. <laughs> are they trying to progress ideas? Are they trying to, again, like so many organizations have kind of stepped up to ask that question of like, how do we gain back trust if we've drifted so far away from what like a large percentage of like the American population believes in like whatever, if they, they don't trust us, like they won't read us because they don't think that we're unbiased. How do we solve that problem? How do we, if we are biased, how do we be less biased? And if we aren't biased, how do we make people understand that we aren't? Right. I don't know. I think Yeah, and I, I think it gets to the question of what an editorial page is for. Is it just yeah. preaching to the choir? And if so, then like, yeah, we can keep reading about Tom Friedman's cab drivers. But, <laughs> you know, if the, mm. if the point of it is to really engage in an intellectual battlefield, then even if the only effect is to say to the Times' centrist left readership, there are people who are well-educated and good writers like Brett Stevens out there. Here's his argument. Prepare yours. Like, that's helpful to say, here's a guy who says the planet's warming, that says humans are responsible, but he's not quite on board with, like, we need to do stuff about this. So, and he, he's laid his argument out here. So now you are better prepared to make your own argument about why he should care. Right. I mean, I guess I just wonder whether the, that real ideological battle happens within institutions, such as the editorial board of the New York Times, which, is, as we said earlier, is a pretty constrained set of viewpoints as is, or sort of between institutions at this point. I mean, do you sort of duke it out with your colleagues, or do you write columns that go up next to columns from the National Review or the Wall Street Journal? I, I'm, I'm just curious. I think we're in a really sort of squishy spot with this. So I, I guess I'm unclear on what I think about that. I mean, for the good of democracy, not to uh, <laughs> make it too broad and highfalutin, although I'm sure the Times would say that you know, can't that's what they're doing. Right. The lights are dimming. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. <laughs> you know, not everybody's going to say, oh, okay, I read the New York Times' Sunday editorial pages. Now let me go out and get my copy of National Review. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we saw this again, Chris, you mentioned the election. The reaction from so many people was, I didn't know anybody who voted for the other person. And if you can have a publication with the reach and the kind of legacy of the times that allows for a representation of the national conversation, I do think that's a good thing. And again, that's why I would say you need more diversity in every way. We should have Sanders supporters and Trump supporters and absolutely should have more people of color representing, you know, any number of different ethnicities, backgrounds. Uh, I just think that would make for a more interesting editorial page uh, and like it would be better for that readership. Absolutely. Also, I mean, and that's not to say, I mean, obviously like having, you know, someone on the op-ed pages, you know, like whatever they write, that's not an endorsement from the Times and clearly like there are limits to who they should invite to like be on there, right? Like they shouldn't just have like, you know, whatever Steve Bannon, like pen and whatever he wants <laughs> to like put now. That would be well read. It would be well read. It's true. We get lots of clicks. Right. Um, but I'm saying like, you know, like there's a limit to who they should invite to like be sure. on that board. But still, I mean, like so within those <laughs> limits, I mean, I don't think that Stevens really goes that far out on a limb, to be honest. And I see the outrage. I completely understand it. That climate change is a dire issue. I don't think that he framed it well. But he also makes some valid points and he does come to it from like a fairly centrist standpoint. I don't understand the huge outrage as a response to it. Like people have said like much more outrageous things when it comes to climate change, probably in the New York Times pages. Well, I'm sure that we will have a chance to follow that as he continues to provoke and prod and antagonize Times readers. That seems to be what he's there for. He seems happy to do it. And 
he has written some very controversial and frankly upsetting things in the past about everything from campus rape to what he called the disease of the Arab mind with respect to anti-Semitism. So this is not the last time that Brett Stevens' name is going to be in the news. Joining me on the pod this week for our third segment is a very special guest, Ashley Kodiani, the director of social publishing for CNN. Ashley, so great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Me too, me too. So before we start, I have two quick disclaimers. First, for the audience, my girlfriend Isabel works for the CNN social team that Ashley oversees. And then second, for you, Ashley, I should just let you know that this is typically how I introduce myself to all of Isabel's friends and colleagues, have them on the podcast, do a one-on-one interview, (laughs) and I let the people decide. Yeah, got it. Sounds about right. Right. So director for social publishing, what sort of are the boundaries of that realm? What do you oversee? What do you do on a sort of day-to-day basis? Yeah, so it's actually a a really interesting role, and I'm so happy to be in it. It's the director of social publishing, which is obviously not a title that you see in the media landscape often because publishing is is sort of seen as new-ish in social, not in social media, but in how you distribute and optimize content, which is what my team does. So publishing is looking at all the social media platforms that we work with, looking at our messaging app platforms, deciding where we should be, and then alternatively being smart about how we then publish and distribute and use the content that CNN is producing. So Obviously, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, and it's Facebook and Twitter for international as well. It's Instagram, it's Instagram stories, it's Facebook Live, it's Facebook, it's Twitter moments, it's Twitter, like I've said, it's then it's Snapchat Discover, it's Line, a messaging app that's very successful and large in Japan, then it's Kick, and we just really, you know, we really like to be where our audiences are, and so being on all of these messaging apps and being on all these social media platforms allow us to take the incredible reporting that CNN is doing and then optimizing it and packaging it for each platform. So what my team is doing is saying, hey, we have Will Ripley who's reporting on the ground in North Korea. How can we use all of his tweets? How can we work with him to to be tweeting and then turn that into a Twitter moment? How can we uh, work with him to have him host a day in the life of being a reporter in North Korea on our Instagram story? How can we do a day in the life diary for a Facebook video? And really cutting content, editing content, when I say cutting, I mean editing. How do we edit content and use content and shape content specifically for each platform that we're distributing to and not just, say, republishing content for the sake of republishing it? Right. So you obviously mentioned the big ones that everyone is familiar with, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, et cetera. You, you actually mentioned some that I'd never heard of, or at least just in passing, maybe like Kick, for example. Right. Uh, is, is your general philosophy to try to be everywhere? I think it's be everywhere in the places that matter, right? So it's looking at audience size and it's looking at resources and do I have the resources to effectively produce shareable and useful content on these platforms? And so when I look at Kick and they have, you know, X million number of users in the US between the ages of, you know, 13 to 18, we have the capability to build out really informative, interactive features on that platform as sort of a messaging bot back and forth, then yeah, I want to be in that space because I want to be building habits and new habits for new audiences on new platforms. I want, whether there's a television 
in a 15-year-old's parents' living room or not, I want to make sure that CNN is reaching them in the places that they already are. And so platforms like Kick for a younger U.S. audience makes sense. Line, for example, which I said is a, a very popular app in Japan, is, is just a huge opportunity for us to be connecting with the APAC region. And so we optimize and schedule content and publish content on that platform that is very relatable to that audience. Um, when we look at Snapchat Discover, again, that is a very mobile social audience. Obviously, users are going into Snapchat daily, so let's make sure we're there and that we're delivering what CNN does best, which is breaking news, big news stories, taking complex topics and digesting them. Mm -hmm. So you're really on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. I mean, Snapchat Discover has only been around for maybe a year or two, I think, at this point. So I'm just kind of curious on how you learn to basically tailor your content for each of these platforms, which have such different audiences, such different consumption habits with those audiences. Right. So everyone needs to be willing to adapt when you work in social media. And I would say that you also have to spend a lot of time getting to know your audience. It's not uncommon to not be perfect in the first go, and that is absolutely acceptable and okay. You, We are now sort of living in a time where we have enough data. We can make very educated guesses about what our audience is going to want to consume and how they're going to want to consume it. So as a publisher, and as a student who's looking to go into social media, it's be always being willing to adapt and always be willing to make an effort to understand your audience. I, I would say there's a lot of times now where, you know, we shouldn't be throwing spaghetti at the wall and there's really no need to because we're, we're able to sort of more than ever kind of get deep dives into how people are responding to certain pieces of content and topics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think one of the general criticisms for a lot of the sort of distributed models is that, you know, you basically have less control over your metrics. So I'm just kind of curious if that is a sort of difficulty for you guys just measuring your audience since they're hosted by outside platforms. Right. So I would say with platforms that are newer, you know, Kick and Line and other messaging apps, they're new to the publisher space, as are we as publishers. And so of course, we have certain demands and there's information that we would want more of. And so we do make sure that we share that with them. The, the more information that we can be getting from these platforms, the better. And so I think, you know, it's not just myself. It's, I would say, publishers across the board. You know, the more data that we can get, it's always the better. And that's something that we're very mindful of. But sure, of course, that is definitely one of the challenges is making sure that we have as much data as we possibly do and, and can have so that we can make smarter decisions. Right. So I'm, I'm curious to get more into sort of the relationship that you have with these platforms, both from a starting point, like whether mm -hmm. you have contractual relationships with these publishers, whether that's on Snapchat Discover or for a certain quota of Facebook Live videos, but also, you know, as you alluded to just now, they're back and forth with you insofar as helping you tailor content, helping you engage with them and vice versa. Right. So I think with platforms and publishers, I mean, it is what it is. It's a relationship, right? So um, it's two different sides and, and we are publishing content for platforms that they're then able to use. So there's, there's benefits on both sides, certainly. Obviously, you know, the metrics question that you raise, you know, that is something that we're always wanting more of, particularly with the new and emerging platforms as they build 
we want to know more. So we do publish a lot of on-platform content at CNN, and, and there's a reason behind that, right? We're really focused on building new news habits for new generations. And so whether you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter or you're on Instagram, you know, if that's where the audience is going to be and if that's where the biggest audiences are and that's where we're seeing the most engagement, we're going to optimize for that engagement, whether that is in native video, whether that is in Facebook Lives. Um, obviously, we, we do publish Facebook Instagram articles. And again, for us in the beginning and what we're doing right now is, is just making sure that we're delivering really meaningful content in the best ways and it's getting to that audience. And that's where the relationship kind of comes in with the platforms is, is we are distributing on them because that's where, at least in the social space, that's where our biggest audiences are. So we want to be there, but we want to be CNN on those brands, which is it's making sure that every age group knows that when they see CNN, they're getting a very trusted, valued news source. In terms of um, the contracts and stuff, you know, I'm, I'm actually I can't really speak to that. I'm not really much involved in that. But um just from the the broader perspective, you know, it's it's back to what you said earlier, which is being in places where everybody is. And right now, I have two mobile phones in front of me. You have your mobile phone out. I mean, we're consuming on mobile. And so it's making sure that all of the content that we're producing gets into the places where the people are. Right. I was curious, a lot of these platforms, Instagram, Snapchat, they, they generally skew a lot younger. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, across this broad swath of different platforms, are there any sort of major themes that you see as emerging for how the younger generations consume content or is sort of this world of social platforms so fragmented that it's really specific to each different one? I would say the younger the younger audiences, you know, one of the reasons why we're on kick is to build that habit among younger audiences. I often survey on my my own time or when I'm home in Connecticut, I'll get all the neighborhood kids together and I'll be like, what apps are you on? <laughs> Always asking everybody in high school and younger, what apps are you using? What apps are you using? I would say across the board, I always feel like I hear Snapchat. I always feel like I hear Instagram. Uh, and that's great. And I think, you know, peer to peer messaging is obviously growing. Dark social is growing. It's seeing a story and emailing it to your friends. It's seeing a story and WhatsApping it to your friends. And so it's my team that has to think about that and has to think about how are we sharing in dark social and why and what are the trends there and how many of our stories are finding their way into WhatsApp and is that something that we really need to think about and and so always thinking about every generation as as they grow older where's the younger generation where's the generation before them right. now you're trying to build habits I'm early on always always thinking about it so right. it's it's a huge part of my job to make sure that I'm on trend so that that CNN consumption habit is growing right dark social sounds very mysterious oh please <laughs> <laughs> i know it does right? right whoever coined that term right so this sort of area is moving so quickly mm -hmm. so many of these new things are popping up i'm just curious from a manager's point of view, how do you evaluate that in terms of getting the right personnel in the right places? Do people specialize on various platforms or do you have people who have more broader domains for a certain number of them? Yeah. So if we're looking from a hiring manager perspective, um, my team does sort of have a specialization. So I do have a team that focuses specifically on Snapchat Discover and producing and designing for Snapchat Discover. I do have a producer who is focused on messaging apps and how do we optimize online, on Kick, on Facebook Messenger. And then I do have a group of social publishers where 
the responsibilities are divided up day to day between Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. But it's all that everyone's sort of able to flow in between all of that. So I do have publishers who, you know, I have them on Facebook because they're looking at Facebook every day. They're analyzing our audience every day. I call, you know, some of them Dr. Facebook um, at CNN because they're they're just that's how aware of our Facebook audience they are. And if there's I I just I, I like to know that I have experts on my team in each of the platforms. And the same goes for Twitter. I have publishers who are honed in on our Twitter audience and and how are they reacting and how are we live tweeting and what should our frequency be? Um, Because again, it's my team's job to be optimizing for all of these platforms. So I do have experts nestled within my team. Social video is another Mm -hmm. area where I have producers who are, again, just really honed in on audience on shareability, on um, how can we best tell this story for this audience. And I think that's really important, right? Because I can't ask one person to to do everything because then I'm not going to get 100%. So I like to think that, you know, I've set this up in a way where I get 100% of the best work out of the people who have become mini experts in each of the platforms. Mm-hmm. Final question for you uh, yeah. was with regard to discovery of content on social, whether that's uh, UGC or doing reporting just via social channels. You mentioned Donnie O'Sullivan, who's a friend of the podcast. I don't think he even knows it. But, you know, how how does that figure into your day to day? Do you have a specific team dedicated to that? We have a specific team that is dedicated to UGC content and verification. Um, It falls under uh, my boss, who is the executive producer of Emerging Media and Social Media at CNN, Samantha Berry. So social discovery works in tandem with social publishing. They're finding and sourcing a lot of the content that you might see during breaking news, a lot of the videos that are coming and populating on social. Taken by witnesses, for example. Right, witness video. um, and, And their job is to... They verify it, they connect with the uploader, they really analyze and make sure that that is indeed exactly what the uploader is saying and it's from the right situation. The other side of that is too, is you know actual stories that emerge from social media, whether it's today, um, a video of a plane in Seattle that it has become a story, or the United passenger who was dragged off the flight, again, found its origin on a YouTube video. There was a a UGC video yesterday of passengers on another airline in kind of like a little brawl fist fight, again, emerged out of social media. And so we have um, we have a team who is dedicated to verifying the um, the authenticity of all of those uploads during breaking news. It's it's an, it's a vital part of the newsroom. And we will be continuing to watch this space. It's a very exciting place to be. And uh, we thank Ashley Codiani for being on the show and breaking it down for us. Thanks. Yeah, it was so fun. Thanks for having me. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Overcast. Leave us a comment or a share or a rating. And go to CJR.org and become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review. Once again, that's CJR.org. Thank you again for kicking with us. We will see you next week.